on war volumes two and three by karl von clausewitz translated by j j graham this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by timothy ferguson book five chapters one through four general scheme we shall consider military forces one as regards their numerical strength two in their state independent of fighting three in respect of their maintenance and lastly four in their general relations to country and ground thus we shall devote this book to the consideration of things appertaining to an army which only come under the head of necessary conditions of fighting but do not constitute the fight itself they stand in more or less close connection with and react upon the fighting and therefore in consideration and application of the combat they must often appear but we must first consider each by itself as a whole in its essence and peculiarities chapter two theatre of war army campaign the nature of things does not allow of a completely satisfactory definition of these factors denoting respectively space mass and time in war but that we may not sometimes be quite misunderstood we must try to make somewhat plainer the usual meaning of these terms to which we shall in most cases adhere one theatre of war this term denotes properly such a portion of the space over which war prevails as has its boundaries protected and thus possesses a kind of independence this protection may consist in fortresses or important natural obstacles presented by the country or even by its being separated by a considerable distance from the rest of the space embraced in the war such a portion is not a mere piece of the whole but a small whole complete in itself and consequently is more or less in such condition that changes which take place at other points in the seat of war have only an indirect and no direct influence upon it to give an adequate idea of this we may suppose that on this portion an advance is made whilst in another quarter a retreat is taking place or upon the one the army is acting defensively whilst an offensive is being carried on upon the other such a clearly defined idea as this is not capable of universal application it is here used merely to indicate the line of distinction two army with the assistance of the conception of a theatre of war it is very easy to say what an army is it is in point of fact the mass of troops in the same theatre of war but this plainly does not include all that is meant by the term in its common usage blucher and wellington commanded each a separate army in eighteen fifteen although the two were in the same theatre of war the chief command is therefore another distinguishing sign for the conception of an army at the same time this sign is very nearly allied to the preceding for where things are well organized there should only exist one supreme command in a theatre of war and the commander-in-chief in a particular theatre of war should always have a proportionate degree of independence the mere absolute numerical strength of a body of troops is less decisive on the subject than at first might appear for where several armies are acting under one command and upon one and the same theatre of war they are called armies not by reason of their strength but from the relations antecedent to the war open bracket eighteen thirteen the silesian army the army of the north etc close bracket and although we should divide a great mass of troops intended to remain in the same theatre of war into corps we should never divide them into armies at least such a division would be contrary to what seems to be the meaning which is universally attached to the term on the other hand it would certainly be pedantry to apply the term army 
to each band of irregular troops acting independently in a remote province still we must not leave unnoticed that it surprises no one when the army of the vendeans in the revolutionary war is spoken of and yet it was not much stronger the conceptions of army and theatre of war therefore as a rule go together and mutually include each other three campaign although the sum of all military events which happen in all the theatres of war in one year is often called a campaign still however it is more usual and more exact to understand by the term the events in one single theatre of war but it is worse still to connect the notion of a campaign with a period of one year for wars no longer divide themselves naturally into campaigns of a year's duration by fixed and long periods in winter quarters as however the events in a theatre of war of themselves form certain great chapters if for instance the direct effects of some more or less great catastrophe cease and new combinations begin to develop themselves therefore these natural subdivisions must be taken into consideration in order to allot to each year campaign its complete share of events no one would make the campaign of eighteen twelve terminate at memel where the armies were on the first of january and transfer the further retreat of the french until they crossed the elbe to the campaign of eighteen thirteen as the further retreat was plainly only a part of the whole retreat from moscow that we cannot give these conceptions any greater degree of distinctness is of no consequence because they cannot be used as philosophical definitions for the basis of any kind of propositions they only serve to give a little more clearness and precision to the language we use chapter three relation of power in the eighth chapter of the third book we have spoken of the value of superior numbers in battles from which follows as a consequence the superiority of numbers in general in strategy so far the importance of the relations of power is established we shall now add a few more detailed considerations on the subject an unbiased examination of modern military history leads to the conviction that the superiority in numbers becomes every day more decisive the principle of assembling the greatest possible numbers for a decisive battle may therefore be regarded as more important than ever courage and the spirit of an army have in all ages multiplied its physical powers and will continue to do so equally in the future but we find also that at certain periods in history a superiority in the organization and equipment of an army has given a great moral preponderance we find that at other periods a great superiority in mobility had a like effect at one time we see a new system of tactics brought to light at another we see the art of war developing itself in an effort to make a skilful use of ground on great general principles and by such means here and there we find one general gaining great advantage over another but even this tendency has disappeared and wars now go on in a simpler and more natural manner if divesting ourselves of any preconceived notions we look at the experiences of recent wars we must admit that there are but little traces of any of the above influences either throughout any whole campaign or in engagements of a decisive character that is the great battle respecting which we refer to the second chapter of the preceding book armies are in our days so much on a par in regard to arms equipment and drill that there is no very notable difference between the best and the worst in these things a difference may still be observed resulting from the superior instruction of the scientific corps but in general it only amounts to this that one is the inventor and introducer of improved appliances while the other immediately imitates even the subordinate generals leaders of corps and divisions 
in all that comes within the scope of their sphere have in general everywhere the same ideas and methods so that except for the talent of the commander-in-chief a thing entirely dependent on chance and not bearing a constant relation to the standard of education amongst the people and the army there is nothing now but habituation to war which can give one army a decided superiority over the other the nearer we approach to a state of equality in all these things the more decisive becomes the relation in point of numbers the character of modern battles is the result of this state of equality take for instance the battle of borodino where the first army in the world the french measured its strength with the russian which in many parts of its organization and in the education of its special branches might be considered the furthest behindhand in the whole battle there is not one single trace of superior art or intelligence it is a mere trial of strength between the respective armies throughout and as they were nearly equal in that respect the result could not be otherwise than a gradual turn of the scale in favour of that side where there was the greatest energy on the part of the commander and the most experience in war on the part of the troops we have taken this battle as an illustration because in it there was an equality in the numbers on each side such as is rarely to be found we do not maintain that all battles exactly resemble this but it shows the dominant tone of most of them in a battle in which the forces try their strength on each other so leisurely and methodically an exercise of force on one side must make the result in its favour much more certain and it is a fact that we may search modern military history in vain for a battle in which an army has beaten double its own strength an occurrence by no means uncommon in former times bonaparte the greatest general of modern times in all his great victorious battles with one exception that of dresden 1813 had managed to assemble an army superior in numbers or at least very little inferior to that of his opponents and when it was impossible for him to do so as at leipzig brienne leon and belle alliance he was beaten the absolute strength is in strategy generally a given quantity which the commander cannot alter but from this it by no means follows that it is impossible to carry on a war with a decidedly inferior force war is not always a voluntary act of state policy and least of all is it when the forces are very unequal consequently any relation of force is imaginable in war and it would be a strange theory of war which would wish to give up its office just when it is most wanted however desirable theory may consider a proportionate force still it cannot say that no use can be made of the most disproportionate no limits can be prescribed in this respect the weaker the force the more moderate must be its object it proposes to itself and the weaker the force the shorter time it will last in these two directions there is a field for weakness to give way if we may use this expression of the changes which the measure of the force produces in the conduct of war we can only speak by degrees as these things present themselves at present it is sufficient to have indicated the general point of view but to complete that we shall add one more observation the more that an army involved in an unequal combat falls short of the number of its opponents the greater must be the tension of its powers the greater its energy when danger presses if the reverse takes place and instead of heroic desperation a spirit of despondency ensues then certainly there is an end to every art of war if with this energy of powers is combined a wise moderation in the object proposed then there is that play of brilliant actions and prudent forbearances which we admire in the wars of frederick the great but the less that this moderation and caution can affect the more must the tension and energy of the forces become predominant 
when the disproportion of forces is so great that no modification of our own object can ensure us safety from a catastrophe or where the probable continuance of the danger is so great that the greatest economy of our powers can no longer suffice to bring us to our object then the tension of our powers should be concentrated for one desperate blow he who is pressed on all sides expecting little help from things which promise none will place his last and only reliance in the moral ascendancy which despair gives to courage and look upon the greatest daring as the greatest wisdom at the same time employ the assistance of subtle stratagem and if he does not succeed will find in an honourable downfall the right to rise hereafter chapter four relation of the three arms we shall only speak of the three principal arms infantry cavalry and artillery we must be excused for making the following analysis which brings more to tactics but is necessary to give distinctness to our ideas the combat is of two kinds which are essentially different the destructive principle of fire and the hand-to-hand -hand or personal combat this latter again is either attack or defence open bracket as we here speak of elements attack and defence are to be understood in a perfectly absolute sense close brackets artillery obviously acts only with the destructive principle of fire cavalry only with personal combat infantry with both in close combat the essence of defence consists in standing firm as if rooted to the ground the essence of attack is movement cavalry is entirely deficient in the first quality on the other hand it possesses the latter in an especial manner it is therefore only suited for attack infantry has especially the property of standing firm but is not altogether without mobility from this division of the elementary forces of war into different arms we have as a result the superiority and general utility of infantry as compared with the other two arms from it being the only arm which unites in itself all the three elementary forces a further deduction is to be drawn that the combination of the three arms leads to a more perfect use of the forces by affording the means of strengthening at pleasure either the one or the other of the principles which are united in an unalterable manner in infantry the destructive principle of fire is in the wars of the present time plainly beyond measure the most effective nevertheless the close combat man to man is just as plainly to be regarded as the real basis of combat for that reason therefore an army of artillery would only be an absurdity in war but an army of cavalry is conceivable only it would possess very little intensity of force an army of infantry alone is not only conceivable but also much the strongest of the three the three arms therefore stand in this order in reference to independent value infantry cavalry artillery but this order does not hold good if applied to the relative importance of each arm when they are all three acting in conjunction as the destructive principle is much more effective than the principle of motion therefore the complete want of cavalry would weaken an army less than the total want of artillery an army consisting of infantry and artillery alone would certainly find itself in a disagreeable position if opposed to an army composed of all three arms but if what it lacked in cavalry was compensated for by a proportionate increase of infantry it would still by somewhat different mode of acting be able to do very well with its tactical economy its outpost services would cause some embarrassment it would never be able to pursue a beaten enemy with great vivacity and it would make a retreat with greater hardships and efforts but these inconveniences would still never be sufficient in themselves to drive it completely out of the field 
on the other hand such an army opposed to one composed of infantry and cavalry only would be able to play a very good part while it is hardly conceivable that the latter could keep the field at all against an army made up of all three arms of course these reflections on the relative importance of each single arm result only from a consideration of the generality of events in war where one case compensates another and therefore it is not our intention to apply the truth thus ascertained to each individual case of a particular combat a battalion on outpost service or on a retreat may perhaps choose to have withered a squadron in preference to a couple of guns a body of cavalry with horse artillery sent in rapid pursuit of or to cut off a flying enemy wants no infantry etc etc if we summarize the results of these considerations they amount to this one that the infantry is the most independent of the three arms two artillery is quite wanting in independence three infantry is the most important in the combination of the three arms four cavalry can the most easily be dispensed with five a combination of the three arms gives the greatest strength now if the combination of the three gives the greatest strength it is natural to inquire what is the best absolute proportion of each but that is a question which it is almost impossible to answer if we could form a comparative estimate of the cost of organizing in the first instance and then provisioning and maintaining each of the three arms and then again of the relative amount of services rendered by each in war we should obtain a definite result which would give the best proportion in the abstract but this is little more than a play of the imagination the very first term in the comparison is difficult to determine that is to say one of the factors the cost in money is not difficult to find but another the value of men's lives is a computation which no one would readily try to solve by figures also the circumstance that each of the three arms chiefly depends on a different element of strength in the state infantry on the number of the male population cavalry on the number of horses artillery on available financial means introduces into the calculation some heterogeneous conditions the overruling influence of which may be plainly observed in the great outlines of the history of different people at different periods as however for other reasons we cannot altogether dispense with some standard of comparison therefore in place of the whole of the first term of the comparison we must take only that one of its factors which can be ascertained namely the cost in money now on this point it is sufficient for our purposes to assume that in general a squadron of a hundred and fifty horsemen a battalion of infantry eight hundred strong a battery of artillery consisting of eight six-pounders cost nearly the same both as respects the expense of formation and of maintenance with regard to the other member of the comparison that is how much service the one arm is capable of rendering as compared with the others it is much less easy to find any distinct quantity the thing might perhaps be possible if it depended merely on the destroying principle but each arm is destined to its own particular use therefore has its own particular sphere of action which again is not so distinctly defined that it might not be greater or less through modification only in the mode of conducting the war without causing any decided disadvantage we are often told of what experience teaches on this subject and it is supposed that military history affords the information necessary for a settlement of the question but every one must look upon all that as nothing more than a way of talking which as it is not derived from anything of a primary and necessary nature does not deserve attention in an analytical examination now although a fixed ratio as representing the best proportion between the three arms is conceivable but is an x which it is impossible to find 
a mere imaginary quantity still it is possible to appreciate the effect of having a great superiority or a great inferiority in one particular arm as compared with the same arm in the enemy's army artillery increases the destructive principle of fire it is the most redoubtable of arms and its want therefore diminishes very considerably the intensive force of an army on the other hand it is the least movable consequently makes an army more unwieldy further it always requires a force for its support because it is incapable of close combat if it is too numerous so that the troops appointed for its protection are not able to resist the attacks of the enemy at every point it is often lost and from that follows a fresh disadvantage because of the three arms it is the only one which in its principal parts that is guns and carriages the enemy can soon use against us cavalry increases the principle of mobility in an army if too few in number the brisk flame of the elements of war is thereby weakened because everything must be done slower on foot everything must be organized with more care the rich harvest of victory instead of being cut with a scythe can only be reaped with a sickle an excess of cavalry can certainly never be looked upon as a direct diminution of the combative force as an organic disproportion but it may certainly be so indirectly on account of the difficulty of feeding that arm and also if we reflect that instead of a surplus of ten thousand horsemen not required we might have fifty thousand infantry these peculiarities arising from the preponderance of one arm are the more important to the art of war in its limited sense as that art teaches the use of whatever forces are forthcoming and when forces are placed under the command of a general the proportion of the three arms is also commonly already settled without his having had much voice in the matter if we would form an idea of the character of warfare modified by the preponderance of one or the other of the three arms it is to be done in the following manner an excess of artillery leads to a more defensive and passive character in our measures our interest will be to seek security in strong positions great natural obstacles of ground even in mountain positions in order that the natural impediments we find in the ground may undertake the defence and protection of our numerous artillery and that the enemy's force may come themselves and seek their own destruction the whole war will be carried on in a serious formal minuet step on the other hand a want of artillery will make us prefer the offensive the active the mobile principle marching fatigue exertion become our special weapons thus the war will become more diversified more lively rougher small change is substituted for great events with a very numerous cavalry we seek wide plains and take to great movements at a greater distance from the enemy we enjoy more rest and greater conveniences without conferring the same advantages on our adversary we may venture on bolder measures to outflank him and and on more daring movements generally as we have command over space in as far as diversions and invasions are true auxiliary means of war we shall be able to make use of them with greater facility a decided want of cavalry diminishes the force of mobility in an army without increasing its destructive power as an excess of artillery does prudence and method then become the leading characteristics of the war always to remain near the enemy in order to keep him constantly in view no rapid still less hurried movements everywhere a slow pushing on of well-concentrated masses a preference for the defensive and for broken country and when the offensive must be resorted to the shortest road direct to the centre of force in the enemy's army these are the natural tendencies or principles in such cases 
these different forms which warfare takes according as one or the other of the three arms preponderates seldom have an influence so complete and decided as alone or chiefly to determine the direction of a whole undertaking whether we shall act strategically on the offensive or defensive the choice of a theatre of war the determination to fight a great battle or adopt some other means of destruction are points which must be determined by other and more essential considerations at least if this is not the case it is much to be feared that we have mistaken minor details for the chief consideration but although this is so although the great questions must be decided before on other grounds there still always remains a certain margin for the influence of the preponderating arm for in the offensive we can always be prudent and methodical in the defensive bold and enterprising etc etc through all the different stages and gradations of the military life on the other hand the nature of war may have a notable influence on the proportion of the three arms first a national war kept up by militia and a general levy open bracket landsturm close bracket must naturally bring into the field a very numerous infantry for in such wars there is a greater want of the means of equipment than of men and as the equipment consequently is confined to what is indisputably necessary we may easily imagine that for every battery of eight pieces not only one but two or three battalions might be raised second if a weak state opposed to a powerful one cannot take refuge in a general call of the male population to regular military service or in a militia system resembling it then the increase of its artillery is certainly the shortest way of bringing up its weak army nearer to an equality with that of the enemy for it saves men and intensifies the essential principle of military force that is the destructive principle anyway such a state will mostly be confined to a limited theatre and therefore this arm will be better suited to it frederick the great adopted this means in the latter period of the seven years war third cavalry is the arm for movement and great decisions its increase beyond the ordinary proportions is therefore important if the war extends over a great space if expeditions are to be made in various directions and great and decisive blows are intended bonaparte is an example of this that the offensive and defensive do not properly in themselves exercise an influence on the proportion of cavalry will only appear plainly when we come to speak of these two methods of acting in war in the meantime we shall only remark that both assailant and defender as a rule traverse the same space in war and may have also at least in many cases the same decisive intentions we remind our readers of the campaigns of eighteen twelve it is commonly believed that in the middle ages cavalry was much more numerous in proportion to infantry and that the difference has been gradually on the decrease ever since yet this is a mistake at least partially the proportion of cavalry was according to numbers on the average perhaps not much greater of this we may convince ourselves by tracing through the history of the middle ages the detailed statements of the armed forces employed let us only think of the masses of men on foot who composed the armies of the crusaders or the masses who followed the emperors of germany on their roman expeditions it was in reality the importance of the cavalry which was so much greater in those days it was the stronger arm composed of the flower of the people so much that although always very much weaker actually in numbers it was still always looked upon as the chief thing infantry was little valued hardly spoken of hence has arisen the belief that its numbers were few no doubt it happened oftener than it does now that in incursions of small importance in france germany and italy a small army was composed entirely of cavalry as it was the chief arm there is nothing inconsistent in that but these cases decide nothing if we take a general view 
as they are greatly outnumbered by cases of greater armies of the period constituted differently it was only when the obligations of military service imposed by the feudal law had ceased and wars were carried on by soldiers enlisted hired and paid when therefore wars depended on money and enlistment that is at the time of the thirty years war and the wars of louis the fourteenth that this employment of great masses of almost useless infantry was checked and perhaps in those days they might have fallen into exclusive use of cavalry if infantry had not just then risen in importance through the improvements in firearms by which means it maintained its numerical superiority in proportion to cavalry at this period if infantry was weak the proportion was as one to one if numerous as three to one since then cavalry has always decreased in importance according as improvements in the use of firearms have advanced this is intelligible enough in itself but the improvement we speak of does not relate solely to the weapon itself and the skill of handling it we advert also to the greater ability in using troops armed with the weapon at the battle of molwitz the prussian army had brought the fire of their infantry to such a state of perfection that there has been no improvement since then in that sense on the other hand the use of infantry in broken ground and as skirmishers has been introduced more recently and is looked upon as a very great advance in the art of destruction our opinion is therefore that the relation of cavalry has not much changed as far as regards numbers but as regards its importance there has been a great alteration this seems to be a contradiction but is not so in reality the infantry of the middle ages although forming the greater proportion of an army did not attain to that proportion by its value as compared to cavalry but because all that could not be appointed to the very costly cavalry were handed over to the infantry this infantry was therefore merely a last resource and if the number of cavalry had depended merely on the value set on that arm it could never have been too great thus we can understand how cavalry in spite of its constantly decreasing importance may still perhaps have importance enough to keep its numerical relation at that point which it has hitherto so consistently maintained it is a remarkable fact that at least since the wars of the austrian succession the proportion of cavalry to infantry has changed very little the variation being constantly between a fourth a fifth or a sixth this seems to indicate that these proportions meet the natural requirements of an army and that these numbers give the solution which it is impossible to find in a direct manner we doubt however if this is the case and we find the principal instances of the employment of a numerous cavalry sufficiently accounted for by other causes austria and russia are states which have kept a numerous cavalry because they retain in their political condition the fragments of a tartar organization bonaparte for his purpose could never be strong enough in cavalry when he had made use of the conscription as far as possible he had no ways of strengthening his armies but by increasing the auxiliary arms as they cost him more in money than in men besides this it stands to reason that in military enterprises of such enormous extent as his cavalry must have a greater value than in ordinary cases frederick the great it is well known reckoned carefully every recruit that could be saved to his country it was his great business to keep up the strength of his army as far as possible at the expense of other countries his reasons for this are easy to conceive if we remember that his small dominions did not then include prussia and the westphalian provinces cavalry was kept complete by recruitment more easily than infantry irrespective of fewer men being required in addition to which his system of war was completely founded on the mobility of his army and thus it was that while his infantry diminished in number his cavalry was always increasing itself 
till the end of the seven years war still at the end of that war it was hardly more than a fourth of the number of infantry that he had in the field at the period referred to there is no want of instances also of armies entering the field unusually weak in cavalry and yet carrying off the victory the most remarkable is the battle of grossgershon if we only count the french divisions which took part in the battle bonaparte was a hundred thousand strong of which five thousand were cavalry ninety thousand infantry the allies had seventy thousand of which twenty five thousand were cavalry and forty thousand infantry thus in place of twenty thousand cavalry on the side of the allies in excess of the total of french cavalry bonaparte had only fifty thousand additional infantry when he ought to have had a hundred thousand as he gained the battle with that superiority in infantry we must ask whether it was at all likely that he would have lost if the proportions had been a hundred and forty thousand to forty thousand certainly the great advantage of our superiority in cavalry was shown immediately after the battle for bonaparte gained hardly any trophies for his victory the gain of a battle is therefore not everything but is it not always the chief thing if we put together these considerations we can hardly believe that the numerical proportion between the cavalry and infantry which has existed for the last eighty years is the natural one founded solely on their absolute value we are much rather inclined to think that after many fluctuations the relative proportions of these arms will change further in the same direction as hitherto and that the fixed number of cavalry will at last be considerably less with respect to artillery the number of guns has naturally increased since its first invention and according as it has been made lighter and otherwise improved still since the time of frederick the great it has also kept very much to the same proportion of two or three guns per thousand men we mean at the commencement of the campaign for during its course artillery does not melt away as fast as infantry therefore at the end of a campaign the proportion is generally notably greater perhaps three four or five guns per thousand men whether this is the natural proportion or the increase of artillery may be carried out still further without prejudice to the whole conduct of the war must be left for experience to decide the principal results we obtain from the whole of these considerations are one that infantry is the chief arm to which the other two are subordinate two that by the exercise of great skill and energy in command the want of the two subordinate arms may in some measure be compensated for provided that we are much stronger in infantry and the better the infantry the easier this may be done three that it is more difficult to dispense with artillery than with cavalry because it is the chief principle of destruction and its mode of fighting is more amalgamated with that of the infantry four that artillery being the strongest arm as regards to destructive action and cavalry the weakest in that respect the question must in general arise how much artillery can we have without inconvenience and what is the least proportion of cavalry we require end of book five chapters one through four